Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is HudsonRiverRadio.com. I'm Linda Zimmerman. I'm Michael Wharton. And this is Murder in the Hudson Valley on HudsonRiverRadio.com. Welcome, everybody, back to... A brand new edition of Murder in the Hudson Valley on HudsonRiverRadio.com. I'm Brian Horowitz. We have Linda Zimmerman with us. Hi, Linda. Hello. Hello. And joining us tonight, it's a special occasion, we have the one and only judicial candidate himself, Mike Warden, who is able to join us for tonight's uh, slightly offbeat topic. Welcome back, Mike. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. I'm glad to be here again. So tonight, uh, I thought we would do something a little different. Like I said, a little bit offbeat, something that we haven't done before. We're not going to discuss a specific case, but I thought we would go down the list of different methods of capital punishment, different uh, methods of execution that have been used throughout history. So uh, both Mike and Linda were surprisingly quick to jump on board on this one. (laughs) We were fighting over topics. We were. We we had several (laughs) weeks of discussion of who's going to do what, so... Uh, Mike and I each have two different methods, and Linda has three because she was 50% more excited than Mike and I were. (laughs) I think that's an unfair characterization. It was more like 100%, but... All right, fair (laughs) enough. Um, So, you know, the, the... Another topic that came up, well, a thing that came up between the three of us was whether we wanted to offer our own opinions on good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, As we've discussed before, Mike is a judicial candidate at the moment, um, so he doesn't officially have an opinion on anything uh, for everybody's good, right? Uh, Linda has very strong opinions, as do I, and Linda and I like to clash every once in a while, which is what adds to the entertainment. So we're just going to make it up as we go along, right? Absolutely. I I think this is a fascinating topic because um, people hear about capital punishment and immediately say, oh, you can never do that or, you know, kill them, kill them. You know, there's very, very strong opinions. There are very few people who are middle of the road about an execution. And remember, these are not saints we're talking about who are condemned to death. Usually they are very very bad people. Um, So still, I know there are people who say it doesn't matter what anybody does. Life in prison is is good enough. Um, But, you know, there is the sticky problem of how do you execute someone? So, uh, Brian, I think that was a great idea. So we're just going to um, I'm starting out with uh, the gas chamber. 
and we'll talk about how it's done and you know the types of people or you know cases where it's been used so i shall jump right in um i was actually surprised to find out that the idea for the gas chamber goes way back to 1803 uh french general rochambeau of revolutionary war fame um during the haitian revolution they had cargo holds on ships filled with prisoners which they wanted to execute so he had the idea of filling the cargo holds with sulfur dioxide to suffocate all the prisoners so um right did you guys know about that i didn't know about that that is just horrifying right off the bat <laughs> yeah I, I never knew that yeah so rochambeau's idea um the i think first the, the french are going to come up a lot in in the next hour it yes. just seems to be so yeah yeah oh yes yeah there are uh they're they're on top of things with executions mass executions um the first use of a gas chamber was in nevada in 1921 and we're going to hear this several times the idea was it it was a more humane way of killing people and the first uh first to go in to be condemned to the gas chamber was a Chinese gang member named Ji Zhang, who had committed murder. Now, first they they tried to pump deadly gas into his cell. No, that doesn't work. An open cell with other prisoners around. So everybody bad. can share in the festivities, right? Yes. Yeah. That just sounded like a bad idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was a very bad idea. So they decide they need to actually build a separate chamber. On February 8th, 1924 at 9.40 a.m., um, they bring Ji Zhang to the, they're bringing him to the chamber and he's crying and one of the guards, you know, yells at him, says, brace up, you know, basically, don't be a baby. Um, so he's brought to the chamber. They, they strap him in. They start putting the gas in the room. But onlookers start smelling a sweet almond aroma. That is not a good sign because that is cyanide gas you're smelling. So they had to evacuate, clear the room. Um, they continued the execution, and finally it, um, it was successful. Now, in um, the gas chamber became popular in countries like Lithuania, North Korea, Germany, the Soviet Union. Uh, by the early 21st century, in this country, California and Missouri had started giving prisoners a choice between the gas chamber and lethal injections, which we will be getting to. Brian, I believe that is your topic. That's one of mine, yep. Yes. So some numbers here. Between 1921 and 1972, there were 600 executions in the gas chamber. In 1972, there was a four-year moratorium on the death penalty. And when the death penalty returned, only 11 more were killed uh, by the gas chamber. So you can see uh, it, it went way, way down. Now the chambers are usually octagonal. 
and hopefully airtight, as you said, so not everyone shares in the lethal gas, you're strapped to a chair and beneath the chair is a container of sulfuric acid and distilled water. And then there are sodium cyanide crystals, usually as pellets. The executioner, of course, outside the chamber, pulls a lever, dropping these cyanide pellets or crystals into the acid, and the chemical reaction uh, creates hydrocyanic gas. Now, why is that lethal? Uh, to put it simply, cyanide binds to the parts of cells where oxygen usually does. So you are blocking oxygen to your cells. So your heart cells run out of energy, all of your organs, your whole body runs out of energy and it kills you. Now, this was supposed to be humane, but um, apparently it can cause extreme pain takes several minutes before unconsciousness. Um, the last execution by gas chamber was 1999 in Arizona, Walter Legrand. Now he and his brother um, robbed and murdered uh, at least one person. That's why he was sentenced to death. And it said his experience in the gas chamber was one of ag agonizing, choking, and gagging for eight minutes okay that's that is a long long execution that is torture yeah yeah wow um of course the masters of uh gas chambers were the nazis uh they either used uh zyklon b which was a hydro hydrogen cyanide gas or they used something simple like carbon monoxide they had mobile gas chamber vans that they would put the people in the back an airtight compartment just simply hook the exhaust to that back chamber and kill the people in there can you imagine mobile killing vans um they would kill as many gas as many as six thousand people a day that is 10 times more in a single day than the US killed in 80 years of using the gas chamber. And they, they gassed over, over a million people. Um, finally, uh, Arizona has recently refurbished their gas chamber and they put in requisitions to purchase $3,500 worth of uh, cyanide and pellets for making sulfuric acid. So Arizona is apparently apparently preparing to go back to the gas chamber. As of this date, states that have a gas chamber still, maybe not using it, but they have it if they want to use it, Arizona, Alabama, California, Mississippi, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Wyoming. And the latest thing is they may start trying to use nitrogen gas to kill the condemned instead of the cyanide. Um, I don't know exactly how that would work, but there we have the, the horrifying uh, history of the gas chamber. Questions, comments? Well, what comes to mind, Linda, would be even after an execution is over, the body, they have to do something because, I mean, 
the lungs, the you know any of the the oral cavity would be full of some potentially deadly cyanide. I can mm-hmm. imagine some unsuspecting coroner or undertaker, you know, it would potentially breathe this in. So they must have to do something, I imagine. That's an interesting point. Um, they certainly, you know, vent the chamber, but uh, certainly, as you say, lungs could be full of it. And I did read about that nitrogen thing. Um, and I forget the exact, me- well, basically it, I think the goal is to slowly increase the amount of nitrogen while decreasing the amount of oxygen. And one of the, one of the arguments against it of all things was that it could form, perform like nitrous oxide and actually cause euphoria. And some people thought it would be wrong to let them feel happy before they died. Ah, very interesting. Good point. I would say that how long would that process take? You know what I mean? It's pretty quick once they, once they start the replication, it renders them unconscious, and then it's just a matter of. Hmm. But I don't know. I, yeah, some gas chamber so deaths have taken. Yeah. Yes, it it is. Well, all but these again, ex- all we, these except one have all been botched to some degree, which is something we're gonna touch on. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's just, yeah. So. Ugh. Yeah, my point uh, on this, though. Yeah, it's horrible, but when you read what these people did to other people it kind of balances out a little in 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 my mind um you know do do some of these people deserve to live i don't think so it's a tough one it's a tough one because uh i mean i'm i'm not a fan of this i i don't you know just hearing just the torturous process for a lot of these people i i just in many ways, it lowers us to, to their level. So there is no easy answer. I get, I, I understand both sides of the argument, like you said in the beginning, but uh, personally yeah. not a fan. But unless you have something uh, to add on the gas chamber. No, I'm done so, with the gas chamber. Next up is the only method that was 100% successful without fail, but probably by far the most disgusting, and that would be the guillotine. Because mm. it's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's no way to, to kind of, well, I guess there is a way to botch it, but uh, it, it's pretty much 100% effective. Uh, so shall we jump in? Let's do it. Let's All jump right. into the guillotine. <laughs> so onto the guillotine. As we know it, it dates back to 1790 in France. As we said, France is going to come up a lot during this conversation. Uh, it, it came to use during the French Revolution. There were earlier machines designed to behead people. Germany had the plank. P-L-A-N-K-E in the Middle Ages. England had the Halifax gibbet, which was basically a a semicircle curved blade, which didn't work quite as well. Italy had something called the Manaya, if I'm pronouncing that correct, uh, before the guillotine was used. It was named after doctor, medical doctor, Joseph, I don't know how to say, is it Ignace, I-G-N-A-C-E? I don't speak French. I barely speak English. So I believe it sounds good to me. Okay, Joseph Ignace <laughs> Guillotine, without the E on the end, who was actually opposed to capital punishment, as Linda said. Um, his idea was that it would be a more humane method of execution. He argued that swift decapitation was the best method. Uh, sword and axe beheadings were usually botched. They took several swings during which the condemned person was wide awake and alert and aware of everything that's going on as their head was being chopped off. 
He helped oversee the development of this new device, which was being designed by another doctor by the name of Antoine Louis. It was first built by Tobias Schmidt, who was actually a harpsichord maker from Germany. Um, harpsichords have a lot of tension, a uh, combination of wood and metal, so this was actually an expert on how to build something that was sturdy and that would actually be able to take the physical abuse that it was going to be put through. It was first used in April 1792, and for some reason, and nobody really knows, it quickly became known as the guillotine to the complete horror of Dr. Guillotine, who was completely opposed to the whole idea in the first place. So he was not a happy camper that this thing became named after him. It was not something that he was happy about. Uh, thousands of enemies of the French Revolution were executed with the guillotine. People actually complained that it was too quick. It was a spectator event, all these public executions, including uh, nearby restaurants that would take reservations. There were souvenir uh, vendors on the streets. There were people that would actually get up and tell jokes like comedians ahead of time to warm up the crowd. People brought their kids. There were miniature guillotine toys that were sold. And there were even dinner table guillotines used as slicers for bread and for vegetables that were put out on the tables at these events. And that were sold privately, which I can't even imagine making a dinner reservation to go watch beheadings held out in public. Um, public beheadings in France continued until 1939, believe it or not, around the start of World War II. Uh, the public beheadings stopped, but its use continued after. And little known fact that the guillotine had a bit of a second wave in Germany, thanks to Adolf Hitler, Mm -hmm. who seems to be extra creative in these uh, endeavors, as Linda pointed out. He had a number of guillotines placed around Germany during World War II, and he had around 16,500 people beheaded by guillotine in public between 1933 and 1945, just to send messages to the people he wanted to send messages to. And then the extra kick, the Nazis would then send invoices to the families of those who were executed. Around Germany to cover the charging cost. them, covering the cost, covering the cost of executing their own family member. Wow. Yep. Can't even imagine, right? Uh, the guillotine was used in France up until you want to take a guess what year they ended the use of the guillotine in the France. Seventies. I think the seventies. Nineteen seventy-seven. Believe it or not, not wow. that long ago. Nineteen seventy-seven. It was legally abolished in 1981 so the design of it for those who might need a little refresher picture a door frame a sturdy door frame but much much higher and there's a track down the middle of it where an angled blade would ride down so the blade would be raised up and dropped down to uh, behead the individual the blade was angled in order to make a much cleaner cut as opposed to the gibbet like we said in the beginning which had that semicircle curved blade that didn't always make a clean cut. A lot of times it would come down and do half the job, have to be raised Ugh. up and dropped again, and sometimes a third time. Cannot imagine witnessing, let alone being the person uh, who's consigned to that uh, to that end right there. So um, the blade would come down. The head would fall into a basket. It would make a giant mess. Then they would move that body out of the way, raise the blade up, bring the next person up, Drop the blade again, almost like an assembly line. 
Now, at the time, they were not using surgical steel for these blades, and the blade would get dull as the day went on. So if you were near the back of the line, by the time you got to the front, you may very well have a very dull blade that may or may not cut cleanly the first time. So there were cases where that blade would have to be raised up and dropped a second time, even with that angle blade like we talked about. Uh, research into how long a decapitated head remains conscious actually started right from the beginning when they were designing this thing. There were anecdotal stories of having subjects blink or wink, make facial expressions, uh, expressions that they're in extreme pain, which you can imagine. Recently, um, the research has picked up because of the potential for full head transplants in the medical community, something that has been talked about more and more. Um, the general consensus at this point is that the brain remains conscious, fully conscious, for around 10 to 13 seconds on average, but there's brain activity for much, much longer. There are a number of credible stories about people who were um, accurate, uh, who were successfully resuscitated from CPR, and they accurately described the room that they were in and what was going on in the room around them while they were being resuscitated, something that you wouldn't know unless you were conscious enough to be aware of what was going on around you. So there is credible evidence that the brain remains active for much, much longer than that 10 to 13 seconds, even when the blood flow stops. So the guillotine, as Linda said, the common theme that it's more humane. I don't think so. Is it quicker? Sounds like it's much quicker than the gas chamber, but I, I don't know about much more humane. There are even stories of, of people picking up the head and, and poking into the neck hole and hitting the nerves and faces making extreme pain grimaces and, and actually looking up at somebody angrily because they're causing causing them pain and all that and, and cannot imagine sitting through something like that. So there you go. That's the guillotine. Wow. Yeah, I, I was in the uh, Place de Concorde in Paris where the guillotine was set up and I remember standing there reading um, some little sign that said during the height of the executions, the whole plaza there was ankle deep in blood. Ugh. That's how many people. And it's a bit if you, Mike, were you there? The no. Place de Concorde? No. Um, yeah, it's a big open plaza. And if you even think of the entire plaza just covered in blood, let alone ankle deep, because you cut the head off that blood is pumping out of yeah, there. You're looking, give or take five, six liters of blood for an average person. Sure. Right. And you're doing a couple of hundred, I assume, in a day in a in a good day. Mm. Um, just yes. So. Yeah. Pleasant, um, right? <laughs> yeah. Sounded good on paper. Didn't it? Oof. But the, the only my only uh, with the French Revolution, my my uh, consolation is a lot of the people who started the reign of terror ended up getting guillotined themselves. So, you know, often what goes around comes around. But I wonder if it's painless at the time it happens. You know, do they experience any pain other than, you know, the consciousness that might survive once the head is severed? I, you know what? You know? It's, it's a good question. You know, even everybody's been in the kitchen, you're cutting something with a kitchen knife and you cut yourself and you don't feel it 
it's you see the blood first and then you're like what right. and then you find the cut and then it starts to hurt but it hurts and right. you know 10 or 13 seconds of full consciousness is a long time that's a long time you know imagine putting your hand in a pot of boiling water for only 10 seconds <laughs> that's yeah. that's, yeah, that's the longest 10 seconds you're going to you're going to sit through so well and then there's the whole horror of leading up to the guillotine you yeah. know you're condemned you hear the sound you watch the blood spurting of the people in front of you um so yeah how many months or weeks or days of horror do you have to live through before it's finally over yeah standing in line waiting for your turn to get up there makes the dmv yep. look like disney world yeah. <laughs> and the cheering. Can you imagine everybody cheering? Like you said, having dinner, buying souvenirs. They're thrilled you're about to have your head cut off. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah. So much for Cannot imagine. Falls. Yeah. Yeah. Humane, right? Hmm. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Oh, you're, you're welcome. welcome. <laughs> well, I'm going to try to liven things up a little bit oh. with, the with the firing squad. There you go. I don't know if that's really possible, but surprisingly, um, this is a very common form of execution, not necessarily in the United States, but it is used a lot of places in the world. But if we talk about just the United States, the firing squad really had always been traditionally a military type of a punishment, even in the other parts of the world. It had seemed to be more honorable to, to shoot a soldier, even a, a disgraced soldier, than it was to hang them, which is kind of an odd concept. Um, I remember reading about the Nuremberg trials that one of the petitions to Eisenhower after the death sentence wasn't to commute their sentences. It was, we don't want to be hanged. We want to be shot. We're soldiers, you know, shoot us. Um, and of course, that didn't happen. But again, even into the 20th century, there was that perception that being shot was somehow a much more honorable death for a soldier. But in America, the, the firing squad really was limited to the military, but not exclusively because the military used lethal injection. They, that's the only form now. And before that, hanging. So really deserters in, during war, like the Civil War, I think, had the most shot um, for desertion. The last person shot for desertion was in World War II, and that was Eddie Slowick. He was the only person actually executed for desertion. But talking about firing squads, how they're typically done is it's a group of men. Now, Utah is really the only state we have that has any recent executions of all things. And they use five sharpshooters with rifles, 30-30 calibers. And four of those rifles are loaded with a regular cartridge. One of those is loaded with a blank the theory behind that being there's always reasonable doubt in someone's mind that they did not pull a trigger on a loaded gun. So no one will ever know who fired exactly the fatal shots. Although um, if you're one of five people shooting, you can reasonably assume that, you know, you have a pretty good chance of, of being one of those people. The problem with the firing squad, even under those circumstances, you have to have a special room because bullets ricochet. So either you're doing it outdoors, which isn't ideal, or you have to build a special room. You have to have sandbags. And in the case of Utah, they use a chair. So they bring the person in. They're wearing a, a blue jump shoot, 
jumpsuit, excuse me, they strap him to the chair and a doctor listens with a stethoscope to pinpoint the heart. And then he pins a nice little white target right over the heart so that the officers that are, you know, so many paces away behind a wall know exactly where to aim. So in the last case, what they did was the officers are lined up and they begin a countdown from five. And as they count down on the count of when they hit the number two, that's when everybody fires. So presumably the inmate strapped to the chair can hear the countdown. So the anticipation of five, four, three, expecting it to be on one, they shoot at two. Kind of like when they pull teeth at the dentist. All right, we're going to count down from five, five, four, three, mm. and they yank it. So there was actually some pretty high profile firing squad shootings since the 70s. 1977, Gary Gilmore was a very big one. Um, 1996, John Taylor opted to be shot. And what was interesting was in 2010, Ronnie Lee Gardner also opted for the firing squad. That was only 11 years ago. It's kind of when you think about firing squad, you don't think about it being a recent type of a thing. Mm. According to the reports, Ronnie Lee Gardner, from the moment he was shot to the moment the doctor declared he was dead, it was two minutes. So it could be considered a pretty fast. Now, I don't know if two minutes is fast enough, like we talked about, Brian, yeah, that's, the last case. That's a long two minutes. And, and they actually have a doctor. <clears throat> they actually have a medical doctor because usually they have a very hard time finding somebody yeah. in the medical, medical community to participate. Yep. So a couple of interesting things about the, the firing squad I found. In 1913, out in Nevada, during a firing squad execution, the local sheriff could not get enough volunteers to serve on the firing squad. So he developed a machine to do it. He rigged up rifles to a machine because he couldn't get five, I guess, capable marksmen to do it. In 1938, John Deering in Utah agreed to allow a doctor to hook up an EKG to his body at the time he was shot. And the doctor actually made some observations, one of them being literally that the guy was almost scared to death when he was being strapped into the chair. He mm. had a heart rate in excess of 180 beats per minute. Um, and of course, in America, as with most of the execution styles, it was the time to strap them in. They had to read the warrant, ask for last words. But the doctor did note that the moment that the shots were fired, the heart was struck. It stopped beating within 15 seconds. Even though he continued to seem to breathe for several minutes, his heart had ceased to beat. So in terms of a rapid onset of death, it seems to have happened. It's a messy, if you can imagine, a little messy. You're dealing with shooting somebody and their blood is going to leave the body now. If the heart stops immediately, there's no more blood pumping. Blood's going to just simply pull. If you don't stop the heart, that blood's going to pulse out through consider conceivably arteries that are punctured, and it's just going to be messy. Um, it is still a legal form of execution as an alternative. It is not the main form. It's if lethal injection can't be done in Mississippi, Utah, Oklahoma, and South Carolina, of all places. Everything else, it seems like it's out Western, the, you know, but then you have the South Mississippi and South Carolina. So firing squad in America, I don't know. Other countries typically use a single gun like China. They're one of the most prolific users of the 
firing squad. They use a single high pro, um, high powered rifle to the back of the head, the coup de grace, if you will. Um, usually it's like an AK 47 style at point blank range. So there are some leaked pictures I was able to see and it's just complete destruction of the, of the back of the head. There's nothing, you know, the entire brainstem is wiped out. So that has to be a pretty instantaneous way to go, I guess. Seems this, this is current. Yes. Yep. Uh -huh. They do them, they do them in private, but they do have leaked photographs. So very disturbing. It is used around, around the world in other places. North Korea is thought to use it um, publicly. They'll just show up, you know, and you know, here's a traitor. We're going to shoot him in front of everybody. <laughs> wow. But um, I don't know. It's, I, I think, again, it goes to one of those, it seems like a very archaic form of execution. It requires a lot of people. It does involve, you know, instead of one person to, to pull a lever or press a button, now you have five and you better hope they're good shots. Otherwise, you know, I don't know what they, they don't specify what the procedure is. If everybody misses and the person is not mortally wounded, do you leave them there just to bleed to death or, you know, or is there, a, is there a procedure for a second volley? Um, yeah, that's, that's disturbing. And most, yeah, and, <laughs> and really most of the countries that still use an actual firing squad, the provision for that is a single officer in charge would administer the coup de gras, the single shot to the back of the head in those cases where death isn't instantaneous, but nothing is really that documented in what happens here. So I don't know. Firing squad to me, eh, not high on my list of, of things that are, you know, no, humane. I, I would. No, it doesn't sound like it. None of these sound like it in the end, but it's, uh, right. you know, you, yeah, you see but, the motivation of, of, of trying to make it quicker, trying to make it, you know, right. But, but like you had mentioned, there was this almost romanticism, you know, firing squad at dawn. It seemed to be, you know, the the honorable way to go uh, for a soldier. Um, so there, you know, it's strange, but but hanging had that stigma. That's for common criminals. You know, I'm a I'm a colonel or a general. You know, I must be shot. It's very strange. Um psyche but i think between hanging and shooting uh i'll sign me up for the firing squad yes as we'll find out later <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm gonna hold i'm gonna hang on <laughs> and i'll let you know my decision later <laughs> all right why don't we take our first break we'll do a little mental reset i'm sure everybody's horrified hopefully nobody's listening during uh lunch or dinner at this point because uh we probably should have said that at the beginning <laughs> a little disclaimer <laughs> Well, as you but, said, nobody listens to this show um, expecting warm, fuzzy feelings. That's true. That is true. Nobody, nobody's yeah. looking for a good time here. This is the, we're all about <laughs> anger. <laughs> so, all right, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back with more murder in the Hudson Valley. Stick around. HudsonRiverRadio.com, your local Rockland County station. Hi, this is Big Jim Wheeler. You know, I grew up on a farm as a kid, and, well, back in those days, we didn't have much TV to watch. So as a family, we'd sit around the radio, and we'd listen to those old shows. Well, I've become a huge fan of those classic radio shows, and I'm thrilled to share my personal collection of original broadcast recordings with you. Well, we got old Western superheroes, classic stories, oh, we got them all. 
Check out Hudson River Radio's Classic Radio Theater on Sundays at 9 a.m. and again at 9 p.m. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a show. This is Big Jim Wheeler signing off and hoping you enjoy the show. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Did you know there used to be a missile launching site right here in Rockland County? Did you know that Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, and Aaron Burr all spent time in the Hudson Valley? And that ice harvested from Rockland Lake was shipped to places as far away as Australia? I'm Jennifer Lorenzo. Join me for Let's Talk History, where we discuss interesting stories and facts about our own Rockland County. Let's Talk History, every Wednesday at 6 p.m., right here on HudsonRiverRadio.com. HudsonRiverRadio.com. And we are back for better or for worse in our execution special. Um, thanks to the mind of Brian Harwitz coming oh, up with this. <laughs> dump it in my lap. <laughs> <laughs> We're dumping this squarely in your lap. Um, it's fascinating. I mean, I, I'm learning things here. So um, what one thing I, I jumped on right away when um, we came up with this idea was one of the lesser known and possibly the most horrifying we will see um garroting because i saw a well i'll get to that i i i saw a garroting bench in a museum once and it left a huge impression on me not a good one um but what is garroting well basically it's strangulation with a wire, a cord, a metal collar, like a band, some sort of ligature. And behind the, the person, you put this around their throat, there would, the simplest would be a stick to turn and tighten the garret and twist it slowly. Now, this was developed in China, not France, but France will come in here. Uh, repopularizing it. Um, it was made popular or well-known by the Thuggy cult of India in the 17th and 18th century. Now, I think, uh, Mike, you would know, was Temple of Doom, weren't those Thuggies? Yes, the Thuggy guards. Yeah, the Thuggies, yes. Uh, the um, If you know the Temple, who doesn't know the Temple of Doom movie? Um, but the thuggies were professional robbers and murderers. They were hired assassins, essentially. And they were known for their yellow scarves. And they would 
tie a knot with a coin in it called a rumail, this, this device, um, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And what you'd want to do is get that knot or coin like over the Adam's apple there, over the windpipe. So as you touch, uh, as you tightened it, that would help crush the windpipe and, and cut off the air. Um, it was also used, a type of uh, garroting was used in the first century BC in Rome. Um, they called their device a lacus, uh, L-A-Q-U-E-U-S. I'm not know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And of course, Romans um, were known for mass executions, usually crucifixion, uh, but um, they used garroting as well. The Ottoman Empire reserved garroting for the elite, the royal family members and high officials. Um, was that extra punishment if, you know, you were at that level and you created a crime or did they think that was a special fall? We're saving garroting for you. Um, and they used, used to use uh, like a bowstring type thing. So that's more of in the ancient world. Um, and guess who brought it back to more of the modern world? The French. Um, in the period of 1808 to 1814, they used it in Spain. And of course, it was to kill anyone who opposed Napoleon. And uh, it became very popular in Spain after that. And actually, they they adopted the Spanish adopted the garroting as their official and exclusive form of execution, and all garrotings were public until 1897. So again, you could you know bring the family and go watch a a horrendous garroting execution. Now, as I mentioned in the beginning, I had seen a garroting bench and they're very simple looking. You don't, when you first look at it, you're like, what, what am I looking at here? A little workbench. It's, it's a small little bench with on one end is an upright board, uh, a backboard. And if you look closely, there's a hole at the top of that backboard and all usually a little piece of wood jutting out. And the person's neck would be put around. You'd sit down, um, your back up against this upright board, and the cord or rope would be put through that hole around your neck. And behind the board would be a stick or possibly a bolt that, again, would be twisted slowly. Now, unlike these other forms of execution that were designed to be more humane, no, 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 no. The garret was designed to make the condemned suffer a long, slow, painful death. That was the purpose. You were being punished. You did something so horrendous against humanity, against the state, whatever. They didn't want you to have a quick, painless death. They wanted it to be horrific. And I... I saw a um, a dramatization of an actual garroting. Um, wow, that 
that is that is you know that is tough to watch um as i said the spanish government used it um it was adopted in the philippines cuba mexico puerto rico um so the spanish speaking um countries uh you did a lot of garroting the last garroting i could find was march 2nd 1974 that's pretty modern times for something like this and it, it was in spain so you know we talk about these executioners mike with the firing squad there's that reasonable doubt there's that little bit of doubt maybe i'm the one in five who didn't have the live round um this executioner you are it and you're not pulling a lever you're not flipping a switch you are slowly twisting that stick or that lever you have to be one tough mother <laughs> to mm. stand there and watch somebody suffer to that degree, such a slow death. So, so this, um, I would have a hard time condemning anyone to garroting. That uh, I, I might even draw the line. I, I know I am the hanging judge of of podcast hosts. <laughs> um, I admit that, but even I don't think I could stomach a garroting execution for somebody. So, and how long would that brutal. could it take from beginning to end? Was there a oh, time frame? Many, that? many minutes, depending on how slow you wanted it. See, that's just I mean, you it. could drag it out for hours in theory if you wanted to, huh? You could, but usually it was, you know, dragged out a sufficient time for the person to suffer and thrash around. And, um, you know, I guess you gave the crowd. It's thrill. You didn't want to do it too fast because they came to see a garroting. Mm -hmm. They came to see this person. Suffer, Boy, Netflix so. really is a lifesaver, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, keeps people off the street and from yeah. garroting. Oof. And, and you know, Linda, I would suspect that in a lot of these places, the person that was conducting the executions was probably a condemned prisoner themselves that was given the option you can be garroted or you can do the garroting of other people. Oh, I, I, uh, I would think that might have been a lot of times what happens. Possibly. Yeah. I yeah. know that some hangmen in the past were selected for that reason. Like, you know, either you want to end up on the rope or you can, you can do the job for the others. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Because I don't know how, any human being does that on a regular basis as their job. That's yeah. pretty brutal. So what's next on our execution slate here? Well, we're, we're going to sort of continue along your theme with, um, with kind of like strangulation, I guess, and going to hanging, which bring, bring it on. It's probably one of the oldest forms of capital punishment that's been continuously practiced. It's, thought to have originated in Persia about 2,500 years ago and brought to the United Kingdom or England by the Saxons around the fifth century AD. Um, it's a pretty simple method. That's why it's been so common. You don't need much, just a rope and something that, you know, cross beam or a tree limb that's above ground level. It's very visual. 
to visual deterrent. It was thought not to be overly cruel. And we got to remember that this was at a time when, you know, people were executed by breaking on the wheel and -hmm. other, you know, burned alive. So hanging was in the big, big historical picture, much less cruel. Um, And it could be done by someone without any skill, really tie a rope, put it around their neck and, you know, that's all you needed to do. It was really prolific in Britain, especially in the, you know, 15, 16, 1700s, um, at a time when in Britain, even petty crimes like, you know, shoplifting could lead to the gallows. Um, under some of their, their bloody penal codes, you know, people were hanged for all sorts of things that today, you know, would get a slap on the wrist in local criminal court, Brian, like in city court, you know, pettit larceny, for example, um, could send people to the gallows at different times in, in Great Britain. So it wasn't always reserved for murder, which is kind of bizarre to think today when we have, at least over in America, we really have sifted our death penalty cases to the most heinous crimes. Not even every murder just has to be very specific, you know, types of crimes. So hanging, was, we're going to talk a little bit quickly about Britain because we got our hanging here in America from the British. We were a British colony. We brought that with us. You know, the Brits brought it here and we, we continued to do it. And with that, there was a couple different ways of, of hanging people. In the old days, it was simply the cart would back up under a crossbeam and, <clears throat> excuse me, the people would actually have the nooses already tied around their neck and the rope would be tied around their body and they would just back a cart up and they would throw the ropes up to somebody up on the crossbeam. They would tie it and then they would move the cart away. And whatever slack may or may not have been in the rope was all the distance that the body would fall. And it usually wasn't much. And people would slowly die of asphyxiation. Um, They used to have a term in Britain called the Tyburn jig, because at Tyburn, they had a famous triple gallows. And they called it the Tyburn jig because of the way people would kick their legs. And family members would often pull on them to try to speed the death up. So you can imagine this was a a gruesome spectacle and they would do it in batches hanging days would be like not just one or two hangings it would be a bunch of hangings at one time so typically in a case like that where there's no the goal being to break the neck when it doesn't happen it's slow asphyxiation Um, when the rope constricts it doesn't always stop you from breathing so that would be horrific enough if you're slowly you know strangling to death but a lot of times in hanging what it does is it compresses the blood vessels so you might be able to still breathe it's not closing the throat but you can't get oxygenated blood into your brain and you can't get the deoxygenated blood out of your head so it becomes a much more to me even violent way of dying in that case because you're going to be pretty aware of what's going on until you lose consciousness it's going to be a struggle um, so of course, like anything else in, in hanging the goal to make that more humane, if, if it's possible led to short drops. So they would leave a little bit of slack in the rope, maybe 12 inches that didn't really improve things much. Then they adopted what was known as the short drop or the standard drop. So they would, um, drop people about four to five feet when they hanged the Lincoln conspirators, they used about five feet that didn't take into account all the body differences. So, you know, someone who weighed 200 pounds was dropped five feet, just like the woman 
uh, Mary Surratt, who maybe weighed 150 pounds and needed a different drop to sufficiently die. And I think if you read the reports on that, she seemed to struggle more than the males did. Mm -hmm. So it led to the long drop method. And we're going to talk about that where basically they calculated how much weight and speed was or how much weight was required to break the neck. It's kind of bizarre, right? Um, you don't learn about that, that in physics class. That's nothing. No, they you don't. don't. No. But, you know, up until the 1890s, this is the most common form of execution in the United States. And at a time, it was public. So public hangings in Britain, just like in America, when they brought them over here, they were spectacles. They would start at the jail. You know, they would do a procession, even if it was one person. They would ride to their, to their execution. There would be the, the sheriff. There would be the troops. There would be the members of the bar. People would crowd the streets, and then they would crowd around the gallows. And how you behaved, you know, people were watching. Were you brave? You know, did you walk up the stairs to the gallows all firmly, or did you, did you falter? Did you quiver? Did you look afraid? Um, there would be speeches. You know, this was an opportunity to, to scare people, too. Um, there would be prayers. There would be speeches. The condemned would often give a confession. Um, in the case of one of the crimes that Linda and I have looked at from Albany, the, the condemned man, actually promoted his own confession from the gallows that was printed talk about a great sales speech jesse wow. sprang 1827 um you know basically said yeah this is my confession and my lawyer's authorized to sell it um but meanwhile circulating in the crowd were other confessions purporting to be his last words which he hadn't even made yet so these were big big things people would show up you know thousands of people and you know you were expected to do your part the condemned had a role to play in this big theater um, eventually that gradually moved indoors away from the public eye and it became a invitation type thing only but it was still problematic because the local sheriffs were the ones responsible for this so typically in an execution there was a gallows erected it was off of the ground elevated platform and the condemned would be brought in their hands usually were tied behind their back or in front of their body with like a belt like the waist belt we use in, in corrections or police work. And they would be placed onto a trap door, their feet, their ankles tied together, um, a hood placed over their head or a noose first and then the hood. And the goal of the noose would be to put it under the left angle of the jaw. Now in America, we use that traditional coiled hangman's noose, which could be anywhere from five to 13 coils. Um, in Britain, they didn't use a noose like that. They used a simple brass eyelet with a halter noose. So when you see any British hangings or stories about it, it's the pictures are never the big iconic news. It's always this simple brass eyelet. But the same goal was put it under the left angle of the jaw because when the body drops, the sudden stop at the end would jerk the head back and conceivably break the, the neck at the second and third cervical vertebra. It was called a hangman's fracture, actually. It's actually what it's called. And... The goal of that would be to sever the spinal cord, sever the phrenic nerve. If you sever the phrenic nerve, the diaphragm stops, all breathing stops. So it's a pretty rapid onset of death. Um, it's instant unconsciousness. The coiled noose that the Americans used also was thought to help because the noose suddenly hitting against the head would also help render instant unconsciousness. Um, of course, I don't think anybody's around to tell you whether that happened or not. Yeah, that seems a little hypothetical there. Now, the British 
up until the, the abolition of capital punishment, they turned this into an art form. Um, and their hangmen were actually quite proficient. One of the most prolific was Albert Pierpoint, who hanged a lot of war criminals for the British after World War II. He would be flown over to Germany. He hanged um, in one of their famous trials, the Belson trials. A lot of the guards from the Bergen-Belson death camp, Albert Pierpoint was flown over to hang. But he had it down to such a, a quick science that his fastest execution from May of 1951, James Ingalls was the name of the man, was seven seconds from the moment that Albert Pierpoint took hold of him and left the cell. They would go into the adjoining room where the, the British had it down. The, the cell was right next to the death chamber. They walked you from the cell right in seven seconds from the moment he left the cell till he was dead. Wow. I mean, that's practically, um, but the British thought that was the more humane thing. Why drag it out? In America, it's a dragged out process, even behind prison doors. It's reading the death warrant. It's, do you have any last words? It's a, a prolonged process. So it's thought to be a little less humane on that end because the condemned knows it's going to happen. Now you're standing there at the gallows waiting to, to be hanged instead of the British who thought you already know it. You let's just get it over with. So hanging, of course, a lot of problems when you don't have skilled executioners, you have botched hangings. You either suffocate, asphyxiate, or at the other end of that, you decapitate. And there are hangings where the heads are ripped off. Now, I guess you can consider that a successful execution. The person is, is still dead, but it's very gruesome. So wasn't Saddam Hussein apparently uh, had I, his head pulled off in his I, hanging? I think he might have, yes. Yep, very gruesome. Um, so that eventually led to the push to find more humane methods of execution, which is going to take us to our next method, Linda, after our second break. Can All we right. get less? Can we get more humane here, folks? <laughs> yeah, that's so. uh, that's to be determined. We'll see. Yes. <laughs> All right, stick around. There's more coming up on Murder in the Hudson Valley. We'll be right back. Listen to HudsonRiverRadio.com. Don't make us come and find you. Did you know that there have been over 30,000 reported cases of UFOs in the Hudson Valley? What happens to people when they have very close encounters and missing time? I'm Linda Zimmerman. I'm Michael Warden. Join us for UFO Headquarters. We'll dig into some of the most intense and unnerving UFO sightings that happened right here in our backyard. And we invite you to call in and join us on Facebook Live to share your experiences. UFO Headquarters, on the second Monday of every month, right here on HudsonRiverRadio.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast in our app or on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Yvonne, do you know what Tony the Rooster is telling you? Hey, Allison, of course I do. That's right. Tony wants you to join us on Mondays at 6 p.m. for Getting Dirty on HudsonRiverRadio.com. You'll learn all about gardening, local farming and farmers, and why it's cool to get dirty. Join us Mondays at 6 because it's awesomely awesome. HudsonRiverRadio.com, your local Rockland County station. And we are back. Um, wow, this is, uh, this is one tough show here. Um, but I think it's important to know these things 
And, you know, before anybody says yes or no for capital punishment, maybe know what goes behind it all. It's easy um, to sit back and, and not know what's going on. But you're right. I think it is important to know what's going on. And, you know, your morals, your ethics, we, the three of us are across the board, I think. And still, it's this is so awkward for all of us to, it, it, yeah. you know, how do you inject humor into this? I don't think you can. Not really. No. So I'm not even going to try. Um, we're going to the electric chair. Now, this was developed in 18, the idea of it became in 1881 with a dentist in Buffalo, New York, Alfred Southwick. He came up with the idea of electrocution as, here we go again, a more humane alternative to hanging. So we just heard Mike's um, brutal description of how inhumane a lot of hangings are. Um, not surprisingly, the first version was actually with a dental chair, which a lot of us think are torture devices to begin with. <laughs> there, I got a little humor in there. Um, so th they got the idea of this um, to electrocute people, but you need to test it out first before you try it on a person. So a Dr. George Fell of the ASPCA. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't that the Association for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He electrocuted, killed hundreds of stray dogs, experimenting, trying to electrocute them in water, out of water. What was the best way? Um, not something the ASPCA should have been doing. So once they got their electrocution, what they thought was down cold, they um, built this wooden chair. They would strap the condemned to it. Electrodes would be placed on the head and legs. And it was at first thought that the electricity would quickly kill the brain. But they soon realized that, in fact, the main cause of death is ventricular fibrillation cardiac arrest, a heart attack, that the electricity interrupts your normal heartbeat, and that's how you die. Um, the first one to go in the electric chair was in Auburn prison in Auburn, New York. So, uh, you know, a, a New York, another New York form of execution. On August 6, 1890, William Kemmler, now, you know, People say, oh, this poor man, you know, has to go to the electric chair. Yeah, not. He murdered his wife with a hatchet. So once again, I tell everyone, remember who these people are and what compassion did they show their victims? Um, the first jolt of electricity lasted 17 seconds. It was a thousand volts. He was rendered unconscious, but the doctor checked. He was still breathing and his heart was beating. And the doctor yells, have the current turned on again, quick, no delay. He doesn't want the guy to regain consciousness, but there was a delay because the generator needed to recharge. So finally, the generator recharges, and this time they up it to 2,000. As they do that, blood vessels under the skin start rupturing. 
the skin starts burning at the sites of the electrodes on his head and legs. It took eight long minutes, eight minutes to electrocute him. Uh, George Westinghouse of the Westinghouse electric fame, he said they would have done better using an axe. Um, another witness said it was much worse than any hanging they had ever seen. It was an awful spectacle. Despite that, they still thought it would be more humane. It became adopted by more and more states, replacing hanging as the number one form of execution until the 1980s when lethal injection came around. Um, the Philippines, here we are again, they loved their garroting, they loved their electric chair as well. Um, here's a fun fact. In 1896, the emperor of Ethiopia ordered three electric chairs. Anybody want to guess what the problem was there? Take a wild stab. Mm, nowhere to plug it in? Uh, pretty much. <laughs> they didn't have any reliable source of electricity. So two of them, uh, two of the chairs became garden chairs, and the third became the emperor's throne. So there we have it. Okay. Um, the first woman to be uh, executed, uh, executed in the electric chair was Martha Place, and that was on March 20th, 1899, um, in Sing Sing Prison. Now, she was a sweet woman who had killed her own 17-year-old stepdaughter. Now, I've probably mentioned this on the show before. Perhaps I haven't. Um, my father grew up in a house by the Hudson River uh, in Upper Nyack, and he could see Sing Sing Prison across the, the river from his bedroom window. He'd be lying in bed, and he'd see the lights, and when he saw the lights dim, he knew that an execution had taken place. What a, what a charming childhood memory, right? Yeah. Um, that's the view from his bedroom. I know. You know, the good old days when your parents would take you to a public beheading and buy you <laughs> right. a mini guillotine. Those were the good yes, old days. Those were the good old days. If you want sliced pickles, you got your little dining guillotine. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> uh, the youngest person ever killed was a 14-year-old, George Stinney. He was killed June, June 16th, 1944 in South Carolina. Now, 70 years later, didn't do George any good, but um, in 2014, his murder conviction was overturned because he did not receive a fair trial. Um, the last person killed without any choice, because you are sometimes given a choice, was Linda Lyon Block, uh, a murderer. Uh, she was killed in 2002 in Alabama. The last one to be killed by their own choice was December of 2019. Wow. Very, very recent. Leroy Hall Jr. Um, his crime was he had killed his girlfriend and set her on fire. So not a lot of sympathy there. The only person to ever survive the electric chair. 1946, 19-year-old Willie Francis, he murdered a pharmacist in Louisiana. 
And on May 3rd, 1946, he's strapped into the electric chair. The le a leather hood is put over his face. They switch on the electricity, and rather than dying, he starts screaming, take it off, take it off, let me breathe. What happened was um, this was a portable electric chair. They would bring it around to the different prisons. It was known as Gruesome Gertie. It was set up the wrong way by a drunk prison guard. He set it up incorrectly. So Francis got a terrible shock, but it was not lethal. So lawyer Bertrand de Blanc says he's arguing it would be cruel and unusual punishment. It's double jeopardy. He's technically already been, quote unquote, executed in the chair. You can't do it to him again. This went all the way up to the Supreme Court. They rejected the appeals, and it was back to the electric chair a year later, May 9th, 1947. Um, he was finally killed in the electric chair. So just a, some quick facts. Some people actually burn, as that, you know, when they say you're going to fry in the electric chair, sometimes they literally do. 1982, Frank Coppola in Virginia he started sizzling and smoking as his head and legs caught fire. 1996, Pedro Medina in Florida, his head burst into flames. Uh, another thing they quickly learned they had to do, they had to stuff cotton in the anus because as soon as you start electrocuting somebody, they lose control of their bodily functions and urinate and defecate all over themselves. So stuffing cotton in the anus prevented that. There have been electrocutions where the eyeballs popped out. Um, we talked about Gruesome Gertie. Uh, we have talked in the past about old Sparky, the electric chair. Alabama had one called Yellow Mama. So they had all these little names for them. Um, one of the most high profile people who I don't regret went to the electric chair was prolific and very sick serial killer Ted Bundy was put in the chair in 1989. Um, a total of 4,374 people in the US were executed by electric chair over the years. Um, 84 of those were botched to some degree, but still that's a pretty high rate. That's still about 4,300. Um, but quick, humane, uh, it wasn't. No. Oh. It's, it's like getting in a microwave. Something to that effect. Yeah. So that is my disturbing presentation on the electric chair. All right. Well, that brings us up to, I guess, what is the, the newest and most widely accepted version of capital punishment, which, again, the intent was to make it as humane as possible. But we'll see. Not so much. Uh, we're up to lethal injection. It is relatively new. Uh, the United States started to use it only in 1982, a lot more recent than I thought it would it would have been. Hmm. Um. We're going to go over just the general steps, and then we're going to talk about specifically the drugs that they use to, to perform it. Um, each step is very scripted. Each state that uses it 
is a little bit different, but this is uh, just in general terms. Some states actually have written methods that take uh, 99 pages of text of steps that they have to follow to perform a lethal injection. So very scripted down to every move. Um, the condemned is walked or rolled on a stretcher into the execution chamber. The inmate is strapped to a gurney. Two IVs are started, one in each arm. And the tubing is threaded to another room called the anteroom. And that's where the executioners wait. Uh, saline is run through the IVs to make sure that the IVs are running properly. Curtains may be drawn back, allowing witnesses to observe the execution. Uh, in some states, the inmate may be allowed to make a final statement. Other people, witnesses, victims may be allowed to make final statements. Uh, a final check of any last-minute stays of execution or clemency are verified. And injections are generally done manually, not by machine for the most part. There's usually a team of people, like uh, Mike said, in the firing squad. So there are syringes that do not have fatal cocktails in them. So nobody really knows who administered the lethal dose. The execution team is kept separate from anybody else in, uh, in a separate room. And it's generally done in three steps. The first step is an anesthetic, which puts the inmate to sleep. Uh, the second step is a paralyzing agent, which stops all muscle movement, including breathing. And then the third step is a toxic agent, which is the one that causes cardiac arrest and causes uh, actual death of the inmate. So generally, the way it has been done, the first drug, that anesthetic, has been sodium thiopental. The problem with that is that uh, there's only one manufacturer of it in the United States, and they understandably do not want their product associated with executions. They're a pharmaceutical company and they want it associated as a medication, not as a method of execution. Uh, there are some European manufacturers, but same thing. They don't export it to the United States uh, just for that same reason. So several states have had to switch to other medications, uh, such as midazolam, which is similar to a Valium. And the problem with that is... Uh, it can make you kind of loopy. I think we've all taken stuff like that, you know, pre or post surgery or, or uh, you know, for pain management. It doesn't knock you out like an anesthetic would. It can just alter your mental state. That's when you start making jokes. That's when you, you know, you're not quite yourself. You, you don't feel as much pain, but you're still awake. So then they try to up the dose. It doesn't work the same as, as an anesthetic like sodium thiopental. Um, They've uh, tried using propofol, which is what ultimately killed Michael Jackson, the milk of amnesia, they call it in the medical world. Um, again, same thing, trying to get propofol for that use. The manufacturers don't really want anything to do with that. So you have a condemned person who may or may not actually be completely unconscious. And just because they're not responsive doesn't mean that they're necessarily unconscious. So there's your first problem. The second step, that paralyzing agent, um, usually it's vecuronium bromide or pancuronium bromide, known as pavulon. The trade term is pavulon, uh, among others. It's used during anesthesia. It stops all the muscles from moving. It paralyzes the person, but it has no effect on the level of consciousness. So if you have somebody that was given midazolam or something like that, that is not completely unconscious, and then they're given a paralyzing agent, 
they are aware of everything that's going on, but they can't move. They can't breathe. They can't blink. They can't respond. They can't tell anybody that they're wide awake while this is going on. And I can't think of anything really more horrifying than that being fully conscious or partially conscious and not being able to move, not being able to breathe, not being able to do anything. Then comes the third step, um, the fatal toxic agent, which is potassium chloride. At a lower dose, it's used to raise blood levels of potassium for people who need it. At a super high level, it is uh, it what sends the heart into uh, fibrillation, and then ultimately it stops the heart from beating because of the high dose of potassium. It is called liquid fire by some people because if you are at all conscious, the injection site feels like you are on fire. It is incredibly painful. And if you have been paralyzed, again, you have no way to respond. There's no way to uh, tell anybody what is actually going on. So your veins are being pumped full of liquid fire while you may be wide awake and unable to do anything. Um, that, that second step there, the paralyzing agent, is not for the benefit of the condemned. It's actually for the benefit of the people who are observing the execution. Because if you give somebody that anesthetic or analgesic like midazolam and they're not fully unconscious and then they're given uh, the potassium chloride, their muscles are going to jerk, they're going to fight it, they're uncomfortable, it hurts, it's painful. And that second step, that paralyzing agent, stops that from happening. But it doesn't do anything to benefit the person going through the procedure. It's only for the benefit of the people watching the execution, so it's more pleasant for them, which I don't think personally should be a motivation for for uh, adding that step there. So lethal injection, I think, is widely seen as the most uh, clean, medical, clean, painless way of performing an execution, but it, it's really not. There have been a number of cases where uh, it's been botched and it has not gone well, and it's gone on for 30, 40 minutes of, of basically torture before that person finally dies from, from this. So it's not the end-all, be-all that it was intended to be. Hmm. So there you go. Lethal injection. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tough uh, one. That is a tough one. Um, so, I don't know. What do you think? If you had to pick. If I had to pick a method, um, I would take the firing squad. Mike? Yeah, I may have to join you on that one. Um, it's picking which one's less worse than the Can others. You, I, what a horrible choice, right? I would have yeah, to agree. I don't know. I you would, would go, to agree. I'd, I'd we, go firing squad based on everything that we've learned tonight. Um, I, that that actually seems to be the quickest. Yeah. Um, wow. Well, yep. let us hope none of us ever commit a capital crime. <laughs> Well, there's the problem. I, you know, I know there's you mentioned that a few times that, you know what, we're talking about heinous crimes and horrible people. And you're right for the most part, but there have been a number of wrongful convictions. Oh, absolutely. There have been a number of uh, racially motivated convictions. There have been how many convictions throughout history because somebody picked the wrong religion and we're set oh. on fire for that you know what i mean so, yeah on the wrong political point of view right and uh and, yeah you know are we better at it now are we better at getting 100 percent 
accurate and true convictions? I don't know. I don't know. But but to add something um, very current to this, um, I heard something on the news. Um, you know, as as Kabul was uh, falling, um, they were saying that a lot of the current Taliban leaders um, who should have been tried by the military and executed were not were humanely put in prison and are now out of prison and will be committing more horrible crimes. So there is a finality to executions. How many people have we done shows about who never should have seen the light of day and for compassionate reasons or financial economic reasons are back out? And had they been executed, done and gone. And one more thing, the families who year after year, the families of the victims have to fight to keep these people in prison. It's a life sentence for the families of torture to keep the person who killed their loved one behind bars. And if there was capital punishment, Maybe they got some sort of closure. Maybe they can rest and, you know, 20, 30, 40 years down the line, they still don't have to worry about this. So that's my pitch for capital punishment. It is a complicated subject and and there are good points. And I try to keep an open mind on both. But at the end of the day, I think it drags us down to their level. And that's why we have such a great show, because you and I <laughs> love to argue. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> whenever we us... say, whenever we say, you know, if there's an awkward silence, one of us just has to say public defender. And then, <laughs> then, that's, then we just start an argument. <laughs> that's and, it. And while that's we go it. back and forth, Mike is sitting there stone cold silent like the true professional he is. So my hat Well off done, to you, Mike. Mike. Well done. <laughs> yeah, I, I just... Um, you know, I don't, you know, I'm the kind of, I'm a vegetarian. I won't let anything die so I can eat it. But there are some human beings who do things to other human beings who I don't think deserve to live. If life in prison actually meant life in prison, fine. I'll go with that. But that we too, agree on. That okay? we agree on. Yes. Too many people weasel their way out of the system and are back in society. And that is the one thing that is unacceptable. On that, Linda, you and I agree. Oh, my God. We need to end the show here. All right. We're going to end on a high <laughs> note. Well, well, I'm going to jump in because I can't offer an opinion. Okay. Why don't you bring us out, Mike? You, you, why don't but, you raise the bar? <laughs> well, I don't know if I, I don't know about that part. But okay. <laughs> I will say it's like anything else though in life. It's it's a complicated issue and there is it's an issue that mankind's been grappling with for for centuries. Obviously, we've seen the progression of the move towards more humane. It's it's a conversation that's been had by every generation probably between today and probably 1000 years ago, if not longer. So, you know, it's a conversation that's likely to continue into the future and um that's my only comment on the issue. <laughs> very well put. That was very difficultly put. But anyway, I want to thank everybody for joining us on this very unique episode of Murder in the Hudson Valley. Remember, you can catch up with all of our previous shows on any of your popular 
podcasting streaming services and on HudsonRiverRadio.com. HudsonRiverRadio.com, your local Rockland County station.